Hello, everybody. This is Jeremy Swenson. I'm the founder and CEO of Abstract Forward Consulting. We have a podcast, a leading cybersecurity strategy and data protection podcast called the Abstract Forward Podcast. This is our ninth episode. Today is the um, 19th of April, 2020, and we are in the middle, middle of a global pandemic. And the topic of this podcast is really to review cyber trends from 2019 and really how to respond in, in 2020. This is an article uh, that um, I co-wrote with Mamadi Kona, and we find a lot of tie-ins to the global pandemic that we're presently in. So we're going to make sure that we, we cover the pandemic-related things like work-from-home tips, um, identity and access management, the increased number of spam uh, mal malware and ransomware that are um, referencing IRS stimulus checks or um, state stimulus payouts or any sort of keyword that is going to try to target somebody to click on that link. It's really sad, but uh, with that, ransomware is, is increasing. And one of the concluding points we made in the article was that ransomware was increasing specifically to the local and um, state government um, entities. Um, so with that, I want to just introduce our two guests here. We have um, Mamadi Kona, uh, who's an identity access management and cyber specialist. And we have Chip Harris, who is um, a well-credentialed, well-versed um, red team pen test and overall cybersecurity consultant uh, with special focus on banking, telecommunications, insurance, and other industries. With that, I'd like Mamadi to just go ahead and give himself an introduction. Yes, thank you, Jeremy, for inviting me to this podcast. Thank you. And now, first of all, I would like to say hi to our listener there and to make sure that everyone is doing well during these uh, unprecedented times. And uh, I hope that you are coping with this uh, very well. We'll go through this, you know, and uh, let's help each other in any kind of way that we can. And I can kind of see that uh, going on, you know, neighbors are helping each other. You know, the government stepping up, also uh, the private sector helping up. So thank you. My name is Mamadi Kone. I am a senior information security consultant for healthcare industry. And uh, my focus is in identity access management, which basically means that uh, I make sure that uh, employer and contractors have the right access to do their job. And also I'm a founder and president of uh, We Network Now, which is uh, an organization uh, that connects uh, professionals to uh, to opportunities via podcast, uh, via network events, and a mentorship. Mamadi, thank you so much. I respect your intellect and your, your character, and I am so grateful to have you on this show. And I know our listeners as well, um, you were instrumental in helping draft this article that was um, recognized and published by the ISA Journal. So thank you from my heart so much for, for what it is that you do. Moving on to Chip Harris. Um, Chip, if you could just give yourself a, an introduction. Go into some of the details because your background is so interesting. <laughs> my name is uh, Chip Harris. I'm a certified ethical hacker, pen tester, forensic investigator, forensic auditor, and uh, red team leader. Um, I concentrate on uh, major focuses uh, that I work basically in is uh, I work in the intelligence industry, dealing with um, uh, counter surveillance, counter intelligence. Um, I also work in education 
you know, as a writer, um, writing uh, periodicals um, and actually content for students uh, to actually uh, use in the classroom uh, for a postgraduate program for a university. And I also work for a bank uh, that's actually in the middle of a major merger. So I also do administration, uh, you know, engineering and senior red team events for them uh, while we are actually in the process of doing this major acquisition of another bank. Wow. Thank you so much, Chip. It's great to have you here. I know you're um, a patriot, an intellectual writer, and you're going to offer a lot of great uh, insight into this um cyber dilemma in, in the middle of, uh, of, of a global pandemic. So with that, let's just get right into, you know, the meat of, of our show is, um, you know, media disinformation. Um, this was one of the key points of our article, but in the middle of a crisis type situation where there's so much news coming at us and we want the latest update on, you know, how many people are impacted, um, from the virus, what state, where's growing more than not growing. And right now, New York is just blowing up. And I have a lot of friends out in New York, Boston too. Well, really the East Coast, you know, you got New Jersey, you've got, you know, in the cities there. And then of course you got Boston and then New York, which is like a country unto itself. But, and then you have these pref- press briefings, you know, whether it's from the, you know, presidential administration or the one of the state uh, administrations, and then you have the press outlets, and they're reporting things. And there's difference of perspective, and sometimes they get it wrong, and sometimes they get it right. Good information and well-organized um, information can really help the response to to the crisis. And um, you know, one of the things is this whole stimulus check. Where do you go if you're just a regular person to get information on your stimulus check? Mamani, why don't I go to you first? So uh, first of all, that uh, during the, this time of crisis, uh, like you mentioned, uh, uh, we have a uh, uh, Russian war attackers always gonna attack, and they use uh, these times to praise, you know, uh, to actually do uh, uh, the wrong thing, you know, that to steal people's money or you know that to uh, uh, roll out some type of propaganda. So what I would say, especially for me, this from a standpoint. Um, to my listeners, to our listeners out there, is to limit or reduce your news intake because this during this time the the last thing that you want is uh, to get like uh, some disinformation, bad news, right? You know, you don't want that because already you are stressed because one you are layoff or because you are at home constantly. You, you know, you're not going outside, and uh, so with that stress and then on top of uh, getting some bad news. You know, it's not good for your mental or physical health, right? So what I would say is uh, to make sure that you go to like a uh, government site, whether it's the CDC or the World, uh, mm-hmm. the World Health Organization, right? Those will be reliable sites to get your information, right? And also always make sure that you are checking the, the link, the URL, right? Because uh, there have been a lot of ransomware going on that uh, you have these attackers actually mimicking the website of uh, the World Health Organization, right, in order to extract money from people or whatever. So just have to be really, really, really careful with uh, where you, you know, you get your news. And also, you know, this pandemic is like, I don't think this is my personal opinion, if anyone saw this coming. So, right, so it's to also make sure that uh, we give uh, uh, sometimes to these experts, right? They don't know it all. We are learning some new data as we go, right? 
and uh, is to make sure that maybe what was true yesterday might not be true today, right? But just saying that, oh, well, you guys said this yesterday, but you're saying a different thing right now. Therefore, I'm not going to you know, go to the CDC website or I'm not going to go to the World Health Organization website. I think that don't think that's a good approach. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So definitely make sure that uh, we are patients well, for these experts, right? They don't know it all. So I want to follow up with something and I want to hand it to Chip. So you had said... Uh, make sure to check the link. You know, in 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 a number of the things that we mentioned in the article, that comes up. But Chip, could you just give your insight for a regular person? If I'm a regular person, how do I check a link? What are my resources? What am I looking for in the link? I know this. I want to hear it from you to our audience. Right. So normally you would see like HTTP, you know, when you're looking for something that's HTTP or HTTPS, if it's a government entity, it's going to be like .org or .gov, you know, um, based around the organization itself. So it's a certified, you know, actual domain name and link that's actually in there, you know, and most of those are secured sites that are HTTPS, just like if you're buying something from Amazon, you know, they're going to switch you from HTTP to HTTPS. And if you're looking for to make sure that it's a government Government entity instead of .com. You're looking for .dot you know .gov. You know, and if you're looking for an organization like John Hopkins or you know anyone um, like the Maria Shriver Cancer Institute, St. Jude. Normally, it is you know a uh, you know from a .com to a .org organization. Another thing you can do is you can go to say the Trend Micro URL checker. Most of your antivirus companies have a link dedicated for link reputation. Uh, so Semantic does, um, like I said, Trend Micro does. Um, all the big security um, tool makers usually have that link. Now, if it, the problem with that is if it's a newer exploit, it may not be yet entered into that link. But the links are pretty good because what they're doing is they're looking for negative reputational score uh, indicators and they'll, they'll tell you high risk how high risk or if if it's unknown um, mm-hmm. now another thing so what, the point about disinformation which Mamadi and I were making was one uh, artificial intelligence is, is 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 being embraced in this media disinformation war so going back a little bit you know what happened leading up to you know the last presidential election here in the US there was the allegation made that this AI um, disinformation coming out of Eastern European countries, purportedly Russia, where they're creating hundreds of thousands of fake profiles in social media that are sharing fake news to, to push a narrative, to slant what the media and people are thinking about leading up until the election. That's, that's the kind of example of the disinformation war we're getting at. And, and AI mm-hmm. was used to create, you know, those thousands, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of Twitter posts, um, Facebook posts, and um, and accounts. And much of this has been exposed and written about already. But in the middle of a pandemic, the question is, if we're all in social media, and it seems like Facebook has really become uh, its own news source, if, if, if you don't think of it as a news source, maybe you think of it as a news aggregator, because when people are on the go, and they want to know what's going on. They go to Facebook and they see the news that's been shared, right? And right. so that's that's really where the AI kind of ties into it. Now, 
what are your what are your guys' thoughts on you know how do we secure social media and how do we make sure that the information that we're consuming in social media is is true and accurate? I can address that in multiple different ways because if you look at how the, the you know the Russian syndicate um, and you also look at you know they pulled a lot of these things that they're doing that they're putting into AI from history. Um, if you look at how the Stasi did you know disinformation campaigns when they had East and West Germany, they played you know a classic roles out of those actual you know uh, scenarios and books. Same thing with the Russians. Same thing with you know uh, the Koreans on how they actually do a lot of their uh, cult of basically the cult of personality, how they brainwash people to be able to believe certain things in the disinformation campaign. And it's a constant narrative that they keep pushing the exact same thing every single time to multiple sources. So in other words, what the eyes see and the ears hear, the mind will eventually believe. So if you just keep pushing the narrative, pushing the narrative, pushing the narrative, it will eventually take that, you know, a certain percentage of people will believe this no matter what, because they've seen it in, you know, LinkedIn, or they've seen it in Facebook, or they've seen it in, you know, uh, Google searches, or they try to, you know, they listen to YouTube videos, and they are just constantly being bombarded by the exact same information. You're seeing this, you know, and, and a lot of these companies, and I give Facebook a little bit of credit, they're trying to stop some of this. Um, you know, from a security perspective, because they're trying to catch it. And then you see, you know, internally inside companies um, that this is affected to an HR policy that you're not supposed to be looking at this at work. You know, this is something that you have to do on your own time, you know, and this is considered to be a high level risk because there are probably viruses or there's tracking or tracking cookies or something that's involved into that to where it says, okay, now I know who you are and where you are, and I'm going to keep sending that information to you and bombarding it until you believe it well said it's basically psyops warfare it it really is and this has been going on since you know the beginning of organized societies this is nothing new Mm -hmm. um the way it's done and the tools and the big data and the ai that they use to do it yes that that is new Mm -hmm. but there's a good side to this too and that is you know, if we want to share out the messaging that you need to stay six feet away from your neighbor, you need to keep social distancing in place to be safe. And you're seeing that all over in the posts, in the Twitter feed and in the Instagram feed, you're seeing that everywhere. And so that gets ingrained into how we have to operate in the middle of a crisis. Um, the question really is, are there threat actors out there who are going to be manipulating um, the media to get us to click a malicious link or to get us to believe a certain narrative, you know, that the world's going to end or that mm-hmm. this country did this, et cetera, to, to, they want to fester out that conflict to an end. And I think we as citizens, we really need to question what we're reading and we really need to go to multiple sources. Don't, don't just blindly accept the consensus on Facebook right. or Twitter, especially Instagram. And keep in mind also what, else, what comes in here, is marketing and ad revenue dollars mm-hmm. because the more yes. clicks they're getting and you're see, you're seeing this across media you're seeing this so take you know the the face scarf which is a trending selling mm-hmm. item you know i've seen more ads for various face scarfs of many colors styles 
those were not trending and you didn't hear people talking about that in social media before the crisis. You just didn't. And nobody was talking about social distancing before the crisis. And, you know, these two things make sense. But um, let's move on to the next point. And that really is, is, is dealing with ransomware doubles attacking more government entities. And I think we can expand this broader than just government entities mm-hmm. in the middle of a crisis. What are some of the considerations around identifying ransomware, preventing ransomware, and then um, having an incident response for a ransomware incident should you encounter it? So I will, I will you know, address that as first. So, and if you take any organizations, right, there are three aspects that are really important, right, uh, right now, at least in the 21st century. So you have people, you have technology, and your processes, right? And uh, most of the time, organization, then especially big organization, Fortune 500 organization, tend to focus on two aspects, uh, which is uh, technology and processes, right? But it doesn't matter if you have the best technology, the best processes in the world. If you don't take care of the people portion, then you know you, mm-hmm. you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna fail. So, and that's really really important during the uh, this challenging time, this COVID nineteen time, is making sure that okay, not only that we have to make sure that we secure our infrastructure, but also we have to come out with ways how to educate our users, our employees, our contractors, right? Because these users, these contractors, are the ones that are using our technology. So if we don't educate them, telling them, hey, don't click on this, don't do this. Hey, if you get this, you know, and you're not sure, make sure that you reach out to the security team so they can evaluate this link. I think that is definitely uh, one of the uh, appropriate ways to go about, uh, you know, fighting the ransomware. I want to add to one thing that you said, Mamadi, and you said it so well, and that's education. So we're in the middle of a crisis. Normally, you know, there's a e-list and users get sent maybe quarterly, maybe monthly, the the ransomware advisory. Don't click this. Don't click that. Watch out for this. Because of the number of IRS stimulus-related ransomware and phishing campaigns and the COVID-19-related phishing and ransomware campaigns, I would think that that education needs to increase take that in conjunction with the level of psychological unsteadiness, if you will, or fear that any person, you know, the employees at an organization have in the back of their mind. So they're fearful that they might be furloughed. They're fearful that they they can't send their kids to college. They're fearful mm-hmm. about food. They're fearful about a lot of things. And this is understandable. I mean, this is human nature, but because they're fearful, they're not clicking the same way and with the same mindset that they had before. What I'm saying is that they may be clicking on things that normally they wouldn't and not clicking on things that in the past they have. So that's, that's kind of the context of it. What are your thoughts on something like that, Chip? 
Well, yes, there's the psychological aspect of it too. But the other thing, though, too, is we really look at our infrastructure. You know, on your, your you know, mom, what he's saying about you know contractors and so forth is you know the key thing is is not only the access identity, you know, but like you know what restricted rules you know are they following or not following you know that are actually set up uh, for that. So it's, you know we really are starting to take a look at how we have our user environment set up uh, and where the real cracks are are starting to come out, you know, like, wow, now that, you know, 7% of us were actually, you know, working remote and now 100% of us are working remote, you know, what more vulnerabilities are we starting to see that are starting to show up? Where are the cracks in our infrastructure, our bandwidth, you know, our server policy set up correctly? I mean, there are, there are tons of things that we are now starting to see that are starting to come to light based on a lot of this. And I agree with everything that both of y'all have said. I totally agree. But from, you know, me being the attacker looking in, now that you You've got more people that have, you know, uh, access and so forth. You know, are we looking now to look at zero trust networks, you know, with inside or outside environment, how our DMZ things are set up inside and outside the DMZ. And then, you know, um, and now that we're 100% remote and we're allowing more stuff to come in, you know, how are we perpetually scanning for that and looking for certain issues and stuff that might be coming in? You know, are we perpetually scanning, you know, our 365, our exchange, you know, and our email systems? Are we constantly taking a look at who and whom, what, when, where, and how these people have access to certain things? And then largely what I take a look at is how big is the attack surface grown? You know, is the data lake gotten bigger? You know, what what are we doing about ingress data, you know, and excess data that's coming out? You know, so there's a lot of things that you see that are that are coming in, um, uh, you know, from profile attacks, attacking, you know, certain different levels from the sea level on down to, you know, strategic based malware attacks that, you know, with the dif- disinformation campaign, you know, and a lot of the stuff that we see with the loan information. And then we see the last one, which I think, you know, that we're starting to see a lot of attacks come from from multiple different sources, if these things are literally piggybacking, piggybacking on top of each other. So, you know, it's like, wow, I got access to this part. Now I can get access to other different parts like file shares and links. And, you know, I've got you know, more access to uh, user lists and OWA and all. And these things are starting to basically spread throughout the network because some of the contractors, some of the remote employees and stuff are, you know, uh, might be using laptops that were older or not imaged correctly, or they're using their own personal systems, which I hope they're not, to get into, you know, um, their actual business or entity, you know, from home use. This question of such a huge percentage of work from home brings up the fact that there's not enough actual machines. So what you're seeing is virtual machine usage, uh, Mm -hmm. oftentimes facilitated by one of the large um, vendors like a Citrix or ServiceNow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that complicates things. And yes, you know, fr- from an incident response and planning standpoint, those organizations, you were drafting your incident response plan from what you knew as to be normal. Now that you have a huge increase in work from home, that same normal isn't there. So right. data is going to look different and the the level of uh, vendor interaction is going to be different too. So we're starting to realize how dependent organizations are on these big cloud providers and Microsoft mm-hmm. Teams and ServiceNow and uh, Citrix and and, and and things like that. Right. 
Now, something else I want to get at is um, how do we respond to ransomware? Let's just assume that we've got ransomware. Maybe we're small business. Right. Maybe we're mid-sized business. Let's just assume for the sake of this conversation, in the middle of a global pandemic, we got ransomware. So now mm-hmm. we're dealing with families that are sick. We're dealing with less resources. We're dealing with home confinement. And on top of it, we got ransomware, right? Mm-hmm. What do we do? Right. Yeah, that's a, that's a, Jeremy, that's a very good question. So very first, uh, the organization has to know what business is in, and I'm pretty sure our organization know that. And from the healthcare standpoint, I mean, we deal with uh, HIPAA, right? And which is a very, very important organ, uh, information for our patient. And uh, so st- Stealing somebody's credit card number is not the end of the world, right? You can go, or uh, you know, replace your credit card and get another, you know, credit card. But stealing somebody's uh, healthcare information—that's another ball game, right? And uh, that's the reason why, if you take uh, organizations like the healthcare industry, they're really related moving to the crowd, right? Because the crowd is basically, you know, <laughs> so your information stored in somebody's basement, right? And uh, most uh, most of the time, you don't really really have uh, control of uh, the settings and uh, you know and all of, uh, all those things. So that's the first thing, knowing that hey, what's your industry? And secondly, also knowing that uh, what are your access that you are protecting, right? And doing that pros and cons analysis, right? And uh, and this third thing is uh, also working with the government during these unprecedented times because they're really really hard doing it on your own. And uh, making sure to get some information from, you know, the government or also people from uh, the industry that you are in, right? And seeing that, hey, what are the actions that you can take, right? Should you build the ransomware or shouldn't be, uh, you shouldn't pay the ransomware? So those are the things. And it's not really uh, a yes or no question. It's more than, uh, now than a science in this case. Uh, so it's, uh, to me, is up to each organization to come out for a solution that fits uh, the business. Well said, Nominee. I'm going to mm-hmm. add a little clarification to what you said, and I'm going to ask Chip to chime in. So you had brought up the importance of reaching out to other companies in your industry uh, and local government. And that's so important because, one, other companies in your industry may have already been hit with that ransomware. Mm-hmm. So if you're in healthcare, mm-hmm. you may have mm-hmm. another clinic network or another health company, health insurance company. They were already hit with that ransomware. They, they know what it is and somewhat how to respond to it better. They're not advertising that, but this is true. Now, the other thing on the, on the government partnership, they, they have uh, little socks in, in, in the different regions where they track ransomware and cyber exploits. And you should have a relationship with them ahead of time. And you guys both know this, but you should know who at the local government organization, ideally the FBI, who is tracking this. So when it happens to you, you know who to contact and they, they, they'll say one of two things. One, yes, we've seen that variant before. We've been, we've, we know about it and we can help with it. Or no, we haven't seen that variant before. We can't help as much with it, right? I mean, that's pretty much why you use them, right? Now, the other thing that you were getting at, Mamadi, is knowing what part of the business the ransomware is in. Uh, it's really key to know, is it just in the accounting department? Is it in the accounting department and in the finance department? And stop the bleeding, right? Because if you mm-hmm. don't know where it is, it's kind of like not knowing where a leak is in a boat, 
It's very hard to stop the leak if you don't know where it is, and uh, especially in a crisis situation in the middle of, of a pandemic. People are very irrational, they have fears, and they're not performing at their best, and that makes it all the more harder. One other thing I want to add is um, this notion of, of, of 3 two, one backup. So when you're hit with ransomware, immediately the question is, well, did you back up? To what extent did you back up? Et cetera. Because if you did Correct. back up and you, and you, I'm, I'm going to let you talk about this chip, but backup is critically important anytime, but ransomware all the more. So chip, if you could just give some of your backup considerations related to ransomware. Well, I mean, when I look at ransomware, I look at, it's like, you know, um, First off, is it fixable by the actual, you know, uh, antivirals that we have that are in inside our system? Do, you know, do, is our cybersecurity profile able to find out? First off, like you said, where it is, what it's doing, what it's affecting, so forth. You know, we have to isolate that. You know, stop the actual hemorrhaging. You know, uh, of that. You know, being able to leak information, data, business, financial data, whatever it may be. Is you know, is our antivirus going to be able, or you know, stopping this, or do we have to bare metal these machines out and pull them completely off the network and then you know where where was our you know uh, last snapshot in time when it comes down to uh where we were before this happened you know and this is part of your you know uh not only your cyber kill chain but part of your dr recovery you know is like you know how far back in time are we going to lose this information so if we lost the entire database it's like wow this sql cluster is gone it's completely just you know inundated with you know the virus there's nothing that we can do to dig it out you know the kind of example you know i talk about this is mage cart mage cart you know attacks um you know, your uh, card swiping, you know, white plastic for retailers. So, you know, it is a white plastic virus that goes out there and steals credit card information, you know, based around PCI. And it's only seven lines of code, but there's no, you know, virus scanner that goes out there and says, okay, these seven lines of code that we were specifically looking for, can it find it? Because this was made, made MageCart such a very good virus and very good ransomware attack was, is because it's very, very small. It's very, very uh, uh, silent. You know, it's not uh, noisy, you know, and once it attacks those databases and gets in there, you have to manually go in there and start looking at the code to find those seven lines of code to delete them out so you know it's like okay do we go and spend lots of man hours doing that or we just wipe them out and roll them back to the last version before this actually you know happened so that's where you have to really kind of gauge that is what is going to be the total susceptible damage that's going to happen on one side versus what's the benefit of us going back on the other then it swaps back to okay we're going to lose a week's worth of data you know or a month's worth of data and then what is going to be the risk and the cost you know that's associated with that when we roll back that far in time so this really kind of builds into and i think Mohammedi can talk on this as well is when you're looking at your risk factors and you're looking at how you're going to deal with you know that process what it's going to do to affect the business what's it going to do to resolve some of the changes to enhance the business process that we learn from that because i've always used the adage never waste a good crisis you know to learn from what you have done seen you know and implemented and then how those things might be able to change. Great, great analysis. I want to just clarify this three, two, one backup rule concept. What it means is that you you have three copies of files in two mm -hmm. different media forms with one offsite. Mm 
Okay, this is the best type of backup to do to prevent ransomware or any sort of disaster recovery. It's really key that you, as an organizational technology leader, risk leader, be having meetings about three, two, one backup. Um, again, for for our audience, that's three copies of files in two different media forms with one offsite. It's a very strong backup methodology. It's not free but if you don't know what that is please um, reach out to us that's the type of backup Mm -hmm. you want to be doing there's all kinds of horror stories out there Um, government entities included Mm -hmm. mom did you want to talk a little bit about identity and access management related to ransomware a lot of employees have been follow or layoff right now, the challenge that uh, the IAM team are facing right now is to, ma- to make sure do we disable those users' accounts or do we keep them, right? So that has been the challenge that's been going on right now. Master has been is, well, making sure that to disable their AD account, right? Because if you follow somebody, you know, an employer, an employee, for example, and uh, they still have access to your critical infrastructure, to your critical resources. And then how do you know they're even going to come back to your organization? And yet they have uh, access to those critical infrastructure. So that's a big, big, big risk, right? So it's uh, uh, my, uh, uh, my advice is, uh, to organization is to make sure that uh, those employees that have been followed is to disable this AD account so they're not able to access, you know, the uh, resources and then if they come back then they can enable that's an easy task to do you can just run a powershell script to do that and then to enable their account so they can start working so i think that that's uh, uh one of the ways that you can uh minimize uh, uh the risk one other thing to think about with iam in the middle of a pandemic in a mass work from home context is how people are authenticated at the building. And I I, I think about this as the example Mm -hmm. from one of the client sites I was recently at. When you would go to the building, you swiped your badge and there was a fingerprint scanner, two forms. You're authenticated into the building. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now everybody's working from home. Nobody who's working from home does a fingerprint scan. They don't do a badge scan. What they do is they log on to their machine, whether it's a physical machine or it's a virtual machine. So you've taken two things out. You've taken the badge scanner out. You've also taken the fingerprint scanner out. Now, there's other forms of identification you know, at the physical entry point, but that's an interesting caveat because all of that data, and this data was being monitored, right? So we're talking about badge swipe data. You're talking about fingerprint scan data, time of scan, you know, location, all that stuff, all that being monitored for what's normal, right? You don't have that anymore. And so that kind of throws a wrench into the IAM um, monitoring scenario, right? Something to think about. And, you know, normally when I do a pen test, that's the first thing that I would go for is I go for the remote employees because they still have access like they would like a normal seated user in a cubicle would have, but now they have less protection, You know, um, and especially when you're starting to use like a password spray or you're using something that's going out there that's looking for hashing, caching credentials, you know, or hashcat based, you know, is a really good one that goes out there and looks, you know, uh, 
and using rainbow tables as well to start looking for password and password information from mode employees because they still have to have access inside of, you know, the actual network itself. So it builds into exactly what you're saying is you just limited two forms of identification, you know, of the CIA principles, confidentiality, integrity, and accessibility to data based around biometrics, you know, and based around, you know, uh, card-based AD credentials to get you in the building or the elevator or so forth. So now you only have, you know, one, the AD credentials that's based around or the virtual credentials that are based around, you know, the uh, VM that they're using or the laptop that they're using that's been issued to them by, you know, uh, the IT department. So, you know, that one form versus the three that you originally had does make a huge, gigantic target for those people, you know, in actuality to be uh, targeted for, uh, you know, uh, some kind of malicious-based activity. I wanted to just point this out. The risk has increased because so many people are working from home, because we're not authenticating in, in as thorough of a way as we did before without you know the badge, the fingerprint scan, or other form of identification at the physical facility. It is a fact the risk has increased. Because it's a crisis, um, we were forced to do this and thus forced to accept the risk. The question is, what are we doing to compensate for this change? So if you're somebody who's running the SOC, if you're somebody looking at the data security, like if you're mm-hmm. a CISO and you got 10,000 employees and before the crisis you had 2,000 work from home and now you have you know, 9,800 working from home or 9,500 working from home, what are you doing different to secure that? Because mm-hmm. it is a different scenario. Mamadi, I want to let you have your chance to go ahead and say what you were going to say. Yeah, I, I wanted to, I think you guys uh, uh, said it very well. So uh, the one thing that I wanted to add is uh, also the role-based access control can help uh, during these times, right? Is making sure that, uh, let's say, if you have a big organization, say you have a workforce all over the world, um, let's say in Asia, Africa, or Europe, is making sure that you build like a role-based access for your employees, like in Asia, for in uh, in Europe or in Africa, right? So at least that you have a visibility of, oh, you know, if you're working in Europe, you have access to X and Y and Z. If you're working in Africa, you have access in X and Y and Z. I also wanted to add to the point though about uh, the badges, right? Now that the workforce is working from home, is uh, one of the ways to mitigate that access to the building, right? Is to make sure is to disable the access to the building for all employees or contractors into all these things settled, right? So at least you have eliminated one factor. And then you have, if we have a couple of people that need access to the building, just give access to those people that really need to uh, need access to the building. And these can be security guards, right? And, and these can be maybe the cleaning folks, right? Whatever the case might be. So those are some of the ways that say we just have to be creative, you know, during the, uh, this time. Exactly. Well said, Mamadi. Well, uh, let's move on to an entirely um, different topic. I think we've 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 had a good conversation around ransomware related to IAM. Um, but let's talk a little bit about uh, point number four, sort of the mobile ecosystem some of the security considerations that are around there. For for our audience, if you go to the website abstractforward.com, you can go to our blog, and on there you will find um, our article, which reviewed the um, cybersecurity 
um, events. And one of the points that we have in that article is um, around the mobile ecosystem and how the security considerations in the mobile ecosystem um, are really multiplying. We're going to now have a conversation about this in the context of, of global pandemic. But before I do that, I want Mamadi to just go ahead and, in, in your own words, with, with your own experience, how do you define mobile ecosystem for somebody who doesn't really know what is all included in that? The mobile ecosystem, the best way to explain it, let me give an analogy. Think about building a house, right? It involves multiple people, involve the carpenter, involve the electrician, involve the builders, right? And all those people bring some uh, skills uh, uh, to the table in order to build your beautiful house. Now, if you think of uh, the mobile ecosystem, think about it that way. In order to have that beautiful, shiny iPhone or Android on your hand, for you to access Facebook or all your favorite apps is there are a lot of work that goes into it, right? You have maybe the chips that's in the iPhone is from uh, China or somewhere in Asia. You have uh, the iPhone that designed maybe in America, but there are so many companies that are involved in you know in building that iPhone. And now <laughs> there's something called uh, security supply chain that a lot of people don't talk about, right? So we all talk about security, security, security. Right, but we don't really step back to say, "Hey, maybe this chip is built somewhere in Asia. Somebody with um, malice attention can put some bad chip in those iPhone on those uh, Android." Now we, as consumers in America, we are cons- you know we are buying these uh, Chinese uh, smartphones that have flaws in it that are collecting our data, you know, and mm-hmm. they that they're being sent somewhere around the world. Uh, so that's in a nutshell, you know, the ecosystem of uh, a mobile phone. Mamadi, thank you so much. I just want to remind our audience that we are the Abstract Forward Podcast. This is episode number nine. We are talking about uh, the most impactful cyber and business tech trends of 2019 into 2020, work from home tips, identity and access management tips, ransomware phishing prevention tips. We have two esteemed um, specialists with us. Mamadi Kenna and Chip Harris, and we're having a a, a great conversation um, about all these topics. And we're on point number four right now, which, as Mamadi just described, is the mobile ecosystem. So I'm going to throw out some words that are in the mobile ecosystem just real fast here. So, for for example, geofencing, um, SMS, a mobile brand site, e-readers, BlackBerry, um, mobile display ads, in-text ads, Surface Tech, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, um, Foursquare, Java, Windows, um, Symbian, HTML5, um, mobile commerce, micropayments, um, iAds, sponsored app, um, interactive walls, digital signage, QR codes, augmented reality, all these things and more make up the mobile ecosystem. There's an ambient media section of the mobile ecosystem, which uh, I'm looking at this infograph that we we have in the article that we wrote, which again, you can find at abstractforward.com if you go to the blog. But under ambient media, you see QR codes, you see augmented reality, you see digital signage. Under the... um, Messaging is a real big one. You know, messaging can go a lot of different different ways, but under messaging, you know, you have SMS, uh, Twitter, Foursquare, you have geofencing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, if you think about messaging, you can think about it in a number of different ways. So if, if you were to take an SMS text, that really is insecure. But if you were to take, say, um, a text through WhatsApp, that is right. encrypted, that is secure. So that's just a little bit about the mobile ecosystem. But Chip, mm-hmm. go ahead and add what you wanted to add about mobile ecosystem. The mobile ecosystem is changing so rapidly. Um, you know, because, you know, I, I look at it like this. Do you, you have your regular phone and then you have your work phone, right? Maybe they're the same thing. You know, I use my work phone as well as my own personal, you know, phone as well. So I do, I, and I, and I try to make sure that, you know, I've got antivirals and stuff that's actually on my phone. So I've got, you know, um, a leading, you know, cybersecurity company that actually, you know, is software that I put on my phone, uh, to make sure that I don't get, you know, uh, anything on my phone that, you know, from clicking on an ad or when I go to Google on my phone or something else happens here, you know, or I click on that or I download an email. It it is so wide open right now for all the problems and the lack thereof secure mobile device computing right now. Uh, And there's such a need, you know, to be filled by that um, because, you know, that we, you know, for the longest time, a phone was a phone. Now it is a digital lifestyle device or now it is considered to be a digital life, you know, style device as well as a business tool. So I look at it in the context of it is another tool that has access to my systems and to my network and it's another endpoint or vector you know uh that can be used for not only detection but be also another thing that can be a vector of an attack into my system if it has vpn connection or if it's got direct connect you know connection through you know uh geosynchronization you know with my organization and is this device you know susceptible not only to attacks but if I lose this device or this device is completely compromised, what's it going to do to impact the business in my IOT health, you know, uh, through my environment and not only from me losing my personal data that might be on there and my contacts and everything else, but, you know, what is it, you know, if it's a business device, what is it going to be doing to put in, you know, more attacks, you know, in causing more concerns within the network that it was attached to? I think we're at a point where we're all using mobile devices. Um, mm-hmm. The mobile device is is really powerful, can do a lot. If you're a CIO, a CISO, you got to have the assumption in your mind that most, if not all of your employees are heavily using the mobile device for work-related activities. And then, okay, what, what tool are you using to facilitate that containerization? And the containerization mm-hmm. would be, you know, you're separating the business data from the personal data. And, um, you know, in the event of a lost device, that's all the more important. The data that's containerized for work use, you know, can be swiped and the, and the data that's private for that person outside of work, uh, you know, that is, um, that can be dealt with separately than, you know, the business data. And that's just one of the considerations that you should have with, with, with the mobile device. The other thing is the, the level of apps that there are available. So, you know, we're in the middle of a, of, of a pandemic and I'm sure if you searched in the app store, you would see numerous COVID-19 or coronavirus titled apps, right? 
Mm-hmm. And okay, so which one do you download, right? I mean, you you want a, you want an app that gives you up to date information based on your zip code, which is actually nice. So I don't know who 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 made the first um, app for coronavirus. Well, there was probably some sort of healthcare notification app um, ahead of that. But how do we know what app is safe? How do we know? Right. Um, Mamani, what are your thoughts on this? Well, and I mean, th- this goes back to my point that I mentioned earlier, right? So right now, a lot of people are undergoing through a lot of stress, you know, whether it be family, jobs. So uh, the one thing that you don't want to do is uh, to, you know, start looking uh, on Facebook, on social media mm-hmm. to get your information. Because I'm pretty sure you're not get you're not gonna get uh, any good information out there to start with, and the information that are gonna get you are gonna stretch you more. So therefore, is uh, making sure that you go to legit uh, uh, platform. And uh, Chip actually, you know, talked about this how to identify the UI. But uh, the CDC will be a good one, and also the World Health Organization will be a good one, right? And because those guys are experts, they're working around the clock to make sure to provide. The citizens, you know, the population, the best information they can, they can, and of course it changes. And sometimes they're not right. But hey, those are our experts, right? When I get sick, I go to a doctor to see a doctor. I don't say, hey, no, 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 my doctor was wrong last time, therefore I'm not going there. Well, <laughs> they're not perfect, right? So, and uh, we have to uh, make sure that want to reduce our news intake during these times and secondly you know also go to those legitimate organization that i just uh, mentioned and uh, stay away from downloading this application because the what they're gonna do they're gonna i know especially on the android platform right anyone can (laughs) they they don't have like strict rules when it comes to you know developing application so you're only gonna add uh, more application to your phone and uh, uh, you're not gonna get uh, the best out of it so Android and Google, you know, they do have a way of approving apps that are in their app store, if you will. The Play Store is what they call it on the Android side. So, you know, an app would go through some sort of application process and it would theoretically be approved. Uh, That's not foolproof, right? It totally isn't foolproof, right? Um, In the article, Mamadi and I talk about actually uh, an an iOS app that got through – Apple's screening and it turned out to be malicious, but um, there's just going to be more of this happening. The other concept with mobile is the level of permissions. And this is really a kind of a privacy concern because let's just say you've got 20 apps on your phone. Um, There's people who have a lot more than that. Let's face it. There's people probably got 30 apps, maybe 40. It's a lot of apps. And, you know, maybe one is for weather, one is for health notifications. Maybe you got a couple games, a few different types of messaging apps, and you got a social media app. But all these apps, as cool as they are, they have permissions to your other data to do what they need to do. And, you know, to access your camera, um, to you know, access your geolocations, if you're going to use the Maps app and things like that. How do we balance and validate the level of permissions that we're given these apps and what's too much? That's a very good question. Um, I'm the firm believer that less is better. So I, I try to look at my device <laughs> as not a gaming device. I look at it as a calendar, you know, and I'm the same way I've got, you know, um, 
three messaging apps. And I mean, do I really need three messaging apps? Well, I mean, I've got to have three messaging apps because that's how people contact me uh, for certain things. And I agree. It's the, you know, how do we authenticate what is going to be, you know, the best thing to secure not only privacy and everything that's inside my phone, but what is actually needed for business use versus personal use and how do I separate those lines? And they get very gray. Um, you know, because sometimes there's default applications that are put on your phone by the manufacturer that you just can't get off. I mean, I've tried, you know, um, and sometimes, you know, the company will not let you tether that device to uh, a computer inside the network or to a laptop or to another device, which is also, you know, a really good policy because maybe the phone is infected and you don't want that as a vector to infect your local machine or maybe something inside the network. So there's there's multiple things that are play on seeing how the IoT policy needs to be set up. But, you know, in the ecosystem itself, it can either do two things. It can either be a benefit and something that is, uh, you know, greatly used or it can be a hindrance, you know, as something that can actually go in there and cause, you know, um, uh, poisoning, you know, and cause hurt to the actual, you know, network itself. So it is a teeter-totter kind of thing. So what do you think about that? Yeah, so you you made a uh, great one. And what I will add to your point, though, is also making sure that uh, you have uh, many of these apps, if you really think about it, you know, they all overlap. Let me give you an example. So you have Google, a search engine, right? And the way I go about it, and I look at it, well, okay, do I need uh, an application called Around Me that actually gives me all the restaurants, all the coffee shop around me? Well, Google search can do that. So therefore, I don't need the application around me, right? And I also look like, okay, Expedia, all right? The booking uh, application. Well, how many times do I travel a month? How many times do I travel a year? How many times do I look for <laughs> for a hotel, right? Therefore, I don't need that on my phone. I can go, if I need, I can go just to a browser on my computer and do that. And I do that maybe twice or three times, you know, uh, uh, a year, right? So it's kind of, you know, sitting down to do those uh, sanitation of, of your phone. Uh, as I say, it's like some of these apps overlap each other. It's now you. It's up to the user to see. Okay, this one overlaps with this. Maybe I don't need this. For example, for me, I have WhatsApp on my phone, and the reason why I do is because uh, I have uh, people international that live in France, Asia, Africa, right? So I'm able to communicate for those folks uh, for free, uh, and I don't have Facebook on my phone, Facebook Messenger, because Facebook Messenger and WhatsApp do the same thing. Therefore, I was like, well, I don't need Facebook Messenger. So that's uh, one of the techniques that uh, uh, people can use to sanitize uh, uh, mm-hmm. their uh, smartphone. Well said, Mamadi. I think another couple of points to add to that is, one, if you don't know why you have something, you should get rid of it. <laughs> um, yeah, I agree. If you don't know what it is, delete it. <laughs> uh, probably a lot of us have things that we've installed for months and years ago and they're just there you should go through your phone every so often maybe monthly maybe quarterly and just delete what you don't need you know what i mean oftentimes we're prompted in the conversation of of a text or in the conversation of buying tickets or of getting this or of doing that it seems like a lot of the 
business we're doing online, we're prompted to download a corresponding app, mm-hmm. right? And I think we need to think twice about that. Do we really need to download a corresponding app as we do this? Not always. We don't always need to do that. And then there's the whole viewpoint of just keep a phone a phone. Uh, I don't want to have my phone be more than a phone. It's just mm-hmm. a phone. You know, and, the, and really high-ranking security um, government officials, well, they have multiple phones, but they do have a phone that's just a phone for set emergency calls, and you can do nothing else right. with it. And that's one that's one valid viewpoint. I mean, the traditional landline phone that when we're in the office we have, that's what it is. It's a traditional landline phone. It doesn't doesn't have apps like you know the mobile devices do. But I think the broader point about the mobile ecosystem is that we just talk about it, that we know what is going into it and out of it, that we understand its complexity, that we understand that there are um, serious ramifications for a culture of yes to permissions and yes to download. If we say yes to download too often and yes to permissions too often, pretty soon our risk threshold is getting to the red zone. I mean, how many apps and permissions do you need to give until you're in the red zone? Right. Because we there could be a, a test on this, an empirical test where, you know, an organization surveys, you know, 5,000 mobile device users and measures the level of apps that they have, the permissions mm-hmm. given. And at what point, at what number of apps downloaded do permissions get out of control and you are in the red zone and you are highly, highly likely to be compromised? And that that's a real thing because there is a level. There's some number of apps that you hit that's too many. I mean, assuming your memory's not mm-hmm. eaten up, right? Um, there's too many. And then there's, of course too little, which is meaning you don't have the convenience to do what it is that you want to do with the apps to live your life comfortably the way that you want to live it. And there's a fine balance to this. But let's move on as um, you know, we're more than uh, an hour into what is a very interesting conversation. And uh, all throughout this conversation, you know, our hearts and our minds go out to, you know, our, our healthcare professionals and those who are right. ill. And we all have friends and family. And really the reason why we do this is, is we are patriots. You know, we want this to be uh, over and um, we want it to be over, but we don't want to neglect our cyber defenses uh, as we heal because it'd be really bad if a hospital network treating people for the COVID-19 can't access patient data. And that, that, that kind of gets at a whole another thing with the rollback of the uh, medical and healthcare uh, regulations. Uh, you know, they're right. The health regulatory agencies in the United States have have reduced the enforcement of uh, many of the um, regulations uh, that are in the healthcare space, so that healthcare workers can be more agile in their response to the crisis. And that makes a lot of sense. I totally understand that. But let's move on to supply chain cybersecurity threats. That's point number six. You know, supply chain has been trending in the news, Um, whether it's getting food, whether it's getting, you know, cleaning and sanitary supplies, uh, whatever it is, you know, personal protection devices. The sales are uh, up a lot and there's a delay to get those. But let's just start with some of the opening considerations 
the supply chain is a very, very critical to many organizations, if not all organizations, because it needs you know, somebody to do business with in order to get your service or product out of the door, right? That's how just the system is built. Now, the question is now, the person that you are doing business with, are their infrastructure secure? Because you can be secure, you can have all the top-notch technology, but if the person that you are doing business with does not have a very secure infrastructure, that's going to have a risk on you, uh, on you, so that you're going to have to face with, right? And then that's uh, 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 something that uh, organization uh, um, have to really, really, really focus on and uh, and hire uh, you know experts, such as yourself, or abstract uh, you know technology to come in and look at uh, their. Uh, infrastructure to see what uh, their their risk factors are. If organizations can't get what they need to do what they need to do, nothing else matters, right? If Walmart can't get, you know, refrigerators to store its food, that's mm-hmm. bad. If if they can't get, you know, the cloud security tools that they need to run the business, that's bad, you know? So, Supply chain is connected to so many different things, and it's it's a big it's a big um, business for sure. And then there's security considerations. This kind of gets at vendor risk management or third party risk management. In the middle of a pandemic, when supply chains are moving really fast for key hot selling items and services, so any of the cloud vendors they're booming. Oh yeah, you know, Salesforce, Oracle, Microsoft, mm-hmm. Zoom. I mean, all of these companies are just booming. They're hiring like crazy. They're busy. They've got probably tons of trouble tickets and business is good, right? And um, so that's their their supply chains, you know, need to be on time so that they can be operating, uh, you know, at 120%. The, I think right now the focus is really on the hospital networks, mm-hmm. that the hospitals have the supplies that they need. And we've you've heard in, in the news media, you know, the, the conversations about the lack of masks, the lack of, you know, um, cleaning supplies and probably a lot of other supplies because we don't have enough hospital beds, you know, mm-hmm. to be able to handle uh, the the worst case uptick from this virus. How we deal with that is slow the spread, stay home, right? Mm-hmm. To re- yeah, and I'm I'm hoping that uh, uh, Jeremy to add to your point. I'm hoping that our hospitals. Um, uh, around the nations are taking the right uh, uh, precaution to make sure that uh, uh, they are getting their supplies, their services from the vendors securely, right? And I know that it is really easy to get subtracted when, you know, we are going through these uh, unprecedented times. Uh, but I'm hoping that they will collaborate for the government to make sure that, uh, you know, they're not being subtracted you know, during this time. And also I would like to add, add to that, Hopefully, this COVID nineteen after this COVID nineteen, we'll sit down and learn from you know uh, this time and to say, hey guys, let's sit down and to see, okay, we are right. doing business with these guys. How can we have resiliency during times of uh, you know uh, pandemic or during the times of even if it's not pandemic during hard times? So I'm hoping that we'll reevaluate our way that we do business. I think Chip mentioned that. What is that working from home? There were organizations that were really, really do, <laughs> doesn't want their workforce to work from home. But now that we are seeing, hey, actually, you know, we let's take take a look at that. And then also, now we can look at that. Well, 
how do we do business so for that guy that provides us the refrigerator? What about if that guy goes out of the business? What about if we are, you know, going through, you know, a pandemic? You know, how do we make sure that guy provides us, you know, that refrigerator in a very con- good condition without undermining security? So, and um, I'm hoping that uh, many organizations will look at this after this uh, uh, pandemic. Well said, Chip. I want to, I want to, I want to ask you to define and talk about fourth party. What is a fourth party, and what do organizations in the broader community need to know about a fourth party, different from a third party, and how that fits in supply chain? Well, the the easiest way to say it is, is this is something that we've never looked at before in a supply chain kind of way, you know, on how this crisis has shown us how much we need our first, second, third, and fourth party vendors. You know, if we lose a vendor and they're not able to supply, you know, goods, processes, whatever, we've got to fall back on the fourth estate, you know, the fourth supplier, whether that be the government, whether that be, you know, the state itself, or whether it be some kind of private vendor or private industry, you know, for those actual supply needs based on how much is being revved up and needing for the supply. So um, this is something that is new really to us because we've never had to where, for example, you know, the uh, N95 mask, we never you know, uh, expected that, you know, the government would call on a vendor and say, you have to supply this for us immediately. Same thing that we saw this with, you know, um, respirators that are, you know, and uh, stuff that's being supplied now by auto manufacturers because of the need. And now our government has said that we're going to distribute that out by the states are going to have to bid on what is considered to be the need that they need for the medical processes they set in place. So now the states have to bid against other states in an open market, you know, that's based around who or whom's what's trying to grab up what resource so um uh, this is something that we have never really approached you know within the aspect of how we're looking at this you know from a logistic standpoint of view considering that you know let's say for example northern states need respirators versus you know the south that needs you know uh, filter mask versus the east coast that needs you know uh, bloodborne pumps and stuff and you know, i mean it's basically a grab of who's going to get whom and what first based around what they have. And is the state going to pay for it or is the government going to pay for it? Or how's the fourth level manufacturer going to be able to provide that uh, with a cost? Cause there's always a cost to this back to either the taxpayer or back to the state or back to the actual nation. So this is something that we've never really looked at in this crisis on how these things are being supplied to us from different, um, supply agencies that we've never had to look at in the supply chain, you know, ever before. Wow. Chip Harris, you are so insightful. Um, I want to add to what you're saying. I mean, give an example, right? So let's just take the brewery industry, you know, Mm -hmm. here in in, in Minnesota, Mamadi and I are from Minnesota. I know you're from Tennessee, but um, here in Minnesota, we have a big microbrewery explosion over the Mm -hmm. last, I don't know, seven or eight years. And it's kind of cool. But uh, and I think that's in other states, too, because some of the laws have changed around uh, microbreweries. Uh, anyway, I'm not going to get into the details of that. But so these breweries were never before in the supply chain of a hospital mm-hmm. or never before in the supply chain of um, 
you know, cleaning supplies uh, mm-hmm. or, or something like that. And so now you have uh, a um, breweries that are saying, well, oh, by the way, um, we can make um, hand sanitizer. We've never done it before, but we can change our configuration and we can do it. Okay. And, and that's kind of a good thing on, on the surface because it's helpful, right? And it it's, it's, it's coming to help the community when there is need there. However, this vendor, you know, this brewery, let's just say the brewery's name is ABC Brewery. This brewery has never gone through a third-party risk management assessment to be a, you know, to be in the supply chain for who's going to distribute that sanitizer. Do you understand what I'm saying? So because of that, there's a risk there. You know, maybe something as simple as a brewery making hand sanitizer doesn't really have a lot of risk because all they're doing is saying, look, we're going to not make as much alcohol. We know how to make hand sanitizer. We're going to do it. We're going to do it within the compliance requirements we know, and we're going to work with a distributor to get that out. Mm-hmm. Seems well and good enough. But if if a threat actor sees that going on a lot, so the threat actor is saying, well, I know I see a lot of organizations doing things that normally they're don't not doing that are not their core competencies and are kind of out of their supply chain. And because right. of that, threat actor knows, well, maybe these organizations aren't that well defended then. And maybe I'm going to try to exploit and um, target these type of industries and companies. And that's really sad that that happens, but we know that it does, right? So it's how do we how do we right. reconcile this? paradox of you know you have companies that want to help that maybe they have a limited capacity to do something whether it's you know to manufacture hand sanitizer and um, manufacture masks or something else but you know we just we just saw this explosion of this um, paper uh, mill in um, and I believe they uh, were ramped up in production for the lack of paper products. Well, you see they're ramping up in production to be really heroic and really helpful to the community. But in the course of being aggressive and really helpful, um, some some checks were missed and a major disaster happens and the plant blows up. Now, I'm not going to get into the details of that case. I don't know if you guys saw that in the news, but that does happen where where organiza- – so yeah. let's just say you know, you're, 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 you're a brewery and you want to do something – and be helpful, but there is an added risk to that, and that's not going to go away. Obviously, if you're going to bring that up, you need to bring that up with a warm heart. But you know, the last thing we want is organizations that are helpful doing things for the community that are not in their core competencies, but that they can do, and then some sort of disaster breach or injury happens as a result of it. How do we how do we reconcile? that paradox that's where the corporate social responsibility comes into picture right we are all in this together right we have a common enemy this invisible enemy so we need to help each other in order to fight that common enemy and i've seen that uh, organization like 3m tesla coming out you know to volunteer to help uh, uh, the nation in this uh, uh, during this crisis right so if you have your example if you have a bully that uh, is now doesn't have like a security uh, team because they're a small company. But now we have this case that can help, you know, uh, break max or make a hand sanitizer. And, you know, another security company can say, right, right, to say, hey, you know what? 
I want to help you, you know, make sure that while you are building this product, that you are, you know, your your infrastructure is secure. Let me do that for you, right? Yeah. And uh, so that uh, really goes to show, like, uh, well, you know, now only you want to make money, right? But also you care about your community during, you know, this hard time. So we the organization, like I was uh, reading, uh, I think it was a couple of weeks ago where uh, Microsoft, you know, gave like a six, I believe was it 12 weeks, you know, uh, uh, to uh, people or maternity, was it maternity? I can't remember, but it was something to literally help the employees, you know, during this crisis. And uh, we all need to, uh, do something if you can, if you have skills, like uh, Jeremy, you're doing right now, you know, uh, setting, uh, you know, putting out this podcast to inform our listeners, our audience is a very good thing to do, you know. So You say it so yeah. well, Mambri. I want to go back to that hand sanitizer example in, in a brewery, right? Uh, that brewery, or there's a number of breweries doing this, but um, I think you're right. Um, you should have technology companies and security companies saying, look, because you breweries are doing this additional helpful thing, we're going to make sure that you're also secure. And you may think, well, what what's there to worry about? Well, the thing that there is to worry about is, so after that brewery makes all this hand sanitizer, probably they have to get connected to some distribution network. And there is some data connection mm-hmm. there, right? And so Somebody at the brewery is on the phone with somebody who's a distributor, and they have to get into their environment to upload the data for the delivery and the logistics and all that. And they just do it click fast. They don't think about it. And that that type of culture is where you're asking for problems and unacceptable risk. You know what, you know what I'm saying? Because there's no third-party risk assessment here. It, it's right. pretty much help out because the house is on fire. But you can help out because the house is on fire. But, uh, you know, make sure that, uh, you know, when you put that ladder up to the window, it, the ladder is fixed uh, securely mm-hmm. and that you got somebody watching the ladder for you, right? And you know your, sure. you know, how to respond if uh, you get in there and there's, um, you know, something that's explosive. Those, those, those type of things. It's been over an hour. We've, we've been talking at length about how to secure your environment while working from home um, amid a pandemic, which we've never seen before in our lifetimes. And um, Mamadi and I wrote an article, Six Cyber Trends from 2019, How to Respond in 2020. You know, we reviewed a number of points. We started by talking about media disinformation, um, using artificial intelligence, social media, uh, talked about how to best get information. We talked about ransomware increasing, uh, attacking government entities. We talked about the mobile ecosystem, some of the complexities there. Um, We talked about cloud adoption, privacy concerns. And um, we then talked about supply chain cybersecurity considerations. We all want the nation to heal. We all want the nation to be secure, to be safe. And we want to do what we can to share information so that we all stay busy and learn while we're in our homes. I'd like to ask each of you for just just your outgoing tips for, for the community. How do we 
stay vigilant? How do we stay sharp as these days ahead are challenging and dark? I'd like to start with you, Chip. Well, one is definitely, you know, uh, social distancing, stay at home, you know, and, you know, follow what the CDC, you know, is saying. Everyone needs to wash hands, make sure that we're, you know, wearing masks and so forth. In our digital hygiene, you know, uh, I tell people is to make sure that we are, um, you know, making sure that we are following the processes that are set up by our IT department that we're following the policies that are set up, you know, by our cybersecurity department for uh, digital computing and mobile computing, you know. Uh, and if you don't need access, you don't need, they're going to take away that access. So as administrators, we need to look at us in our environment at whole and say, you know, who needs, you know, access to certain things that's going to reduce third-party risk. Um, we need to take a look at making sure that we are, you know, uh, looking at how we are continuing to uh, scan uh, everything from ransomware to, you know, uh, media disinformation and so forth that can be applied, you know, to our cloud policies and our cybersecure chain, you know, and so forth. So we need to make sure that we are keeping all these things uh, separate and clean. And then we also need to make sure that, you know, we are not opening ourselves up, you know, to more of these actual attacks by making sure that we are looking at our links, looking at what we are opening, you know, uh, be more vigilant and, you know, kind of a cyber paranoid, I tell people, you know, at looking at what you're clicking on, what you're connecting to, uh, what you're actually opening, you know, uh, and then what you're actually sharing, uh, whether that be through the cloud, whether that be through uh, digital meetings, you know, uh, chat windows, so forth. You are putting this out there open to, you know, a third party that can be, you know, um, either stolen or used or something like that against you or against the company for corporate espionage or, you know, cyber intelligence programs that could be used for anything, you know, from uh, fraud to larceny to, you know, uh, doing some kind of attack, you know, uh, on your company uh, that would cause, you know, multiple issues across multiple different platforms. So it's one of those things where we are now really uh, looking at, you know, very introversely to ourselves and introversely to our systems and to our companies and looking at our uh, needed liability and risk across multiple platforms, which I think has been way overdue for a long time. And I'm very sad that a crisis like this had to make something like that happen. But now security now is in the forefront of what we are actually doing now in our digital lifestyles, digital computing and mobile computing, as well as, you know, our work environments that we are uh, working in constantly now from a nine to five basis, if not 24 hour basis. Well said, Chip Harrison. Thank you so much for your service to the nation and your vast expertise. You are a huge, huge resource. Mommy, we'd like to ask for your outgoing thoughts and, and, and learnings. So first of all, my uh, hats and prayers goes out to the ones that are being affected by COVID-19, uh, to those families that have been laid off, those families that have been followed. Also, a big thanks to the front line uh, workers, uh, nurses, uh, uh, doctors, uh, policemen, firemen. Big thanks to them. They are the ones that are keeping us safe and uh, during the, uh, this time. So thank you for, for, your, for your work. Um, so my advice uh, involves around three big points. One is personal. 
Secondly, it's social. And thirdly, it's digital. So let me start by personal first. And uh, during this time, I know it can be really hard on you and your family, right? But uh, hey, look at uh, from the brighter side, right? Be grateful for the things that you have, your family uh, or your health or uh, anything, you know, try to think positively, right? For me, for example, you know, I try to spend as much time as with my daughter. I try to call my loved ones and my friends almost every day to check on them, right? And then also talk to them about the things that I'm grateful, right? And I also uh, try to go out for a run, you know, every day if the weather is nice. Chip, uh, you know, we live in Minnesota. You never know what uh, the weather can give you, right? And uh, I, I try to do that. I also try to, during this time, you know, try to think really, really, really hard about your, your profession, right? Whether that be is acquiring new skills during this time, or use this time, you know, to improve your skills or, or to acquire new skills, right? Not just let this time go to a waste, right? Leverage, you know, leverage this time, acquire new skills, you know, improve your skills. If you wanted to learn about this coding language a long time ago, but you didn't have time, you leverage these skills to learn about that, uh, this time to, lever, uh, to learn about that skills. Now, sure, sure, I think uh, Chip uh, mentioned this, right? Make sure that you listen to the expert, to the CDC, right? right? Because they are the, the ones that are the expert. They're not perfect. They are human. They don't know everything, right? Has the data coming in? Has they learned about this uh, invisible enemy? They're going to let us know. So let's be patient of them. If they say let's do social distancing, let's do that. Let's do everything that we can in order to help our neighbors, to help our doctors, our nurses, our frontline workers, right? Wear your max, you know, if you can't, right? Um, so that's that. And then digital, uh, first, uh, make sure that you take this time to look at your, uh, your, your digital agent, right? I would say, whether that's your phone, look at, uh, if, uh, what are the apps that you really need? And Jeremy mentioned that, uh, you know, there are all these permission going, you know, you download one apps, it wants permission to your camera, it wants permission to your data, right? And uh, look at uh, those things, right? If you, if you really need those apps. You know, cannot delete this app, right? Because the more apps that you have, you know, the riskier days you're opening yourself to risks, right? And also make sure the emails that you are being bombarded with, uh, but uh, you know, what is like uh, malicious people trying to, you know, fool you to click on some link so they can, you know, exhort you. Uh, really, really, really be vigilant. Look at uh, you. I know we are all not techie. Uh, but if you spend some time looking at those emails, really, really make sure. If you don't know, you're not sure, reach out to a friend, you know, reach out to somebody who's, uh, you know, good at uh, tech, who can advise you. Uh, because uh, during this time, people are desperate, people are stressed. And then these uh, the attackers use the, those times to take advantage of people, especially elderly people. Really, really review the emails that you are receiving from, uh, from these companies that are saying that, oh, or... If you click on the IRS, is going to give you X and Y and Z, right? Don't get uh, uh, fooled by those emails. So, thank you. Mamadi, thank you so much. Your expertise is hugely respected and greatly appreciated. And um, the the last couple of points that, that I want to make is as we wrap up uh, what has been a really interesting and fun patriotic conversation is things, things are better than they seem. Every disaster has a silver lining. Uh, we're going to learn from this. Um, the things that um, I'm really interested in 
is how how is the private sector going to innovate? You know, because innovation comes out of crises. Uh, it's happened historically. We will get a um, a better treatment or vaccine eventually. I'm not saying when it's going to happen, but uh, over time we will be able to figure this out and we will be able to recover. But the private sector, you know, we're already seeing it. The work from home, the video conferencing, the collaboration, uh, more and more better innovative solutions for collaboration are going to be coming out. Uh, it just is how we're working. Even right. if there wasn't a crisis, we were headed in that direction anyway, because you don't need to fly people in from different places to sit in a piece of real estate. You just don't need to. You can do a lot um, remotely via camera, um, via audio conference, and you can be very effective. You know what I mean? Sometimes there's a need to be in person, but we're reminded of just the importance of um, digital collaboration. And again, mm -hmm. different startup companies competing in this space are going to flesh out some sort of innovations, innovations that we've not even thought of yet. They're going to happen. And that's sort of in line with the abstract forward philosophy that abstract thinking put up front is going to help us solution. And a lot of times, one of the one of the biggest problems is our own bias, right? And I say this a lot to clients, and that is, you have a bias about how you think things should be done. So there's got to be some traditional people out there who think, well, I can't do business if I'm not at a traditional, nice, fancy office where I can walk over and shake hands and have a desk and have a secretary and the coffee maker and all the traditional things that go with the traditional office. There are people that are so used to that and it's hard for them to move into this environment. Well, in a lot of ways, that's showing a lack of skill on their part in the digital environment. You need to have both. Right. That's not to say that the traditional workplace doesn't have its its value and its respect, but it's to say that if you're overly stuck in that and you're not seeing the newer opinion, the problem really is is on you to learn and, and, and to change. And um, the other point is just really be vigilant about the media you're consuming. I mean, um, we all want to know where we're at, you know, What's the latest advisory? Um, how's this state different than that state? And mm -hmm. it's really important for us to question the media that we're consuming. Um, this is not a political podcast. We're not making political statements at all. That's not what we do. But wherever you get your news, you should question it. Does it make sense? What are their sources, right? Mm -hmm. And look at multiple news sources. Don't just don't just go to one. So if you're going to go to abstractforward.com for information, um, you know, related to cyber hygiene, do that. But don't just go to us. You know, go to other websites and and get your information validated through uh, through through a number of sources. And probably the last thing that I would say is really directed towards the SOCs and the and the CIOs and CISOs at organizations right now. You have a different um, situation on hand where you have the majority of your employees working from home. They weren't before. Um, you don't have the badge access reader. You don't have the fingerprint scanner. Whatever methods of authentication you had before for the corporate real estate, you do not have. You need to think about, do you need to add a um, RSA token for mm -hmm. Those who are working at home, do you need to add another layer of authentication at home? Some companies already have this. Maybe it's a smart card, smart card that you actually insert inside the computer. I know I've had that at some uh, engagements I've been on. That's you log in with your password um, and user ID to get into the AD. You insert the smart card. If you don't have the smart card inserted, 
those other two pieces won't work. And you have a, um, you know, RSA token that has a rotating number, right? So those type of things, if your company isn't doing that to secure, you know, who's working from where they're working, that's something to think about and then focus on, um, you know, need to know information sharing. Um, since right. everybody's working from home, give them the information that they need, but only the information that they need relevant to their role. Um, mm-hmm. And so if you're in accounting, you're going to have access to the accounting related application to do your job, not the marketing. You don't need the marketing. And um, really remind and educate employees about how to separate the personal from the work related because when we're at home we're tempted with the personal you know a lot of us may have a, a tablet that's personal we got another computer that's personal and just a reminder that we can put those away and not mix those with with the work because so many um, ransomware attempts start when people mix the personal and the business you know and that's really not what you want to do one thing I guess one thing you could do and a lot of organizations do this is is, is block unofficial emails so if you try to send an email from your yahoo or your gmail to your work it's not going to go through um organizations really need to be doing that because if if you're that cio or that ciso or if you're leading the sock you would expect that with this huge increase in work from home there's going to be more incidents you would expect that there are going to there's going to be an increased amount of compromised devices at home it's just going to happen you need to be monitoring that. You need to have a way to respond to that. So that may mean you need to staff up the SOC um, and you need to have better data analytics. So we really didn't get a data analytics or security data lakes in, in the time that we had here, but this may be a topic for a future show, but that you're logging, you know, the activities that all the work from home users are doing are being appropriately logged and filed in the right area of the data security lake for future investigation should it need to be done. Those type of things. Those are just some of the tips that I have. Um, but again, it's been just such a great honor to have both you guys on the show. Again, Chip Harris out of the uh, Tennessee area, just a leading uh, cybersecurity consultant, pen tester, red team leader, and, and so much more. And then of course, Mamadi Kona uh, from Minnesota, um, healthcare, IT security, IEM expert, thought leader, entrepreneur in the um, social networking space. I couldn't thank you guys enough. Um, I wish you health, healing, and keep doing the great work that you do. 